The Rare Drug Development Symposium is an interactive global genes event produced in partnership with the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center that focuses on educating both beginners and advanced participants on the drug development process. Join us for this year's symposium, June 10th to 11th. An optional pre-conference workshop on June 9th will review the current landscape of rare drug development. This is an opportunity to interact with experts, patients, and advocates in the field and uncover your role in advancing drug therapies. To learn more or register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash RDDS. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The recruitment of patients for rare disease clinical trials can be challenging because of issues such as small patient populations and their geographic dispersity. But the failure to take a patient-centric approach in designing trial protocols can add to the difficulties sponsors face in, in conducting such studies. The Center for Rare Diseases at PRA Health Sciences recently issued a toolkit focused on patient-centric trial development for sponsors, participants, and advocates. We spoke to Scott Schliebner, Senior Vice President and Head of the Center for Rare Diseases, about designing patient-centric clinical trials, why it matters, and what sponsors can do to stay focused on patients. Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. My pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about patient centricity, clinical trials, and how sponsors can structure studies with rare disease patients in mind. Uh, I've never met a biopharmaceutical company that didn't describe itself as patient-centric. I, I think rare disease companies tend to be a, a bit more sincere about this than the industry as a whole, but how good are companies at being patient-centric, particularly when it comes to clinical trial designs? Yeah, interesting question. A good question. I think when you look around the industry and you look at small biotech companies and, and large pharma and, and, and every shape and size in between, I think a lot of companies um, certainly pay some lip service to being patient-focused or patient-centric. Um, some companies are certainly doing a better job of that than others. Um, some some uh, companies are literally putting their, their money where their mouth is, and that's great to see. I will say we've seen a tremendous, I think the trends are really positive uh, in the way that we're seeing companies move towards being patient-centric. So, you know, we've been evangelizing the need for this for, for several years, and I, I do feel like there's great momentum. Um, and more and more companies, I think, are actually walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Oh, why does it matter? What What's the case for drug developers to take this seriously? Yeah, well, you know, rare diseases certainly pose a unique um, scenario that has some particular, they have some particular challenges and um, hurdles to them. But really, if you zoom out from there to really 
any part of drug development, any disease state, any therapeutic area, um, you know, the need to be able to think about our ultimate stakeholders and end users um, is really what's really important here. And there's a lot of metrics and, and data, and, and I can share a couple facts with us today, but in the, in the rare space, those challenges become amplified and um, become even, you know, the hurdles become even a little bit higher to get over. So there's a lot of particular specific needs to, to think about patients first and foremost, whether it's, whether it's the diagnostic odyssey that they go through, whether it's just the challenge in finding appropriate investigators or finding where these rare patients are and being able to connect them um, to clinical trials, investigators, investigative sites it's it's a it's a challenge, and um, you know when you overlay rare diseases on top of a challenging, somewhat archaic drug development paradigm, um, the challenges become extra complex and exponential, requiring us to really think differently and operationalize these clinical trials in a different way. You talked about hurdles. How big a problem is patient enrollment and retention in rare disease clinical trials today? It's a problem, you know, COVID uh, notwithstanding, you know, right now, when you look at drug development overall, not just rare diseases, we need more patients for more trials every single year. So for 2021, we need 40 million patients worldwide for over 300,000 clinical trials. Um, That's a staggering number that will grow again next year and the year after that. Rare diseases are certainly a subset of that, but we now know that about half of all trials, 50% of all clinical trials are now behind schedule due to enrollments. And we also know that because of the, the way the paradigm is set up where clinical trials open at clinical sites and patients typically travel to and from that clinical site, more than 30% of patients also drop out of studies. So retention is an issue. It's an issue in every indication but again, uh, not to be a broken record, but when you when you move into the rare space, those challenges are amplified. We're talking about children. We're talking about caretakers. We're talking about entire families. And just given the sort of incidence and prevalence of rare diseases being less common, um, people with those diseases don't necessarily live right next to a academic medical center that might house a trial. So we have to be creative and the necessity being really the mother of invention here in terms of us pushing us to do something different. Oh, what are the primary reasons that sponsors fail to enroll the patients they need in a timely manner or lose them during a trial? Well, it really starts with kind of the traditional drug development paradigm that's largely unchanged for the last, you know, three, four decades, right? We we develop a clinical protocol, um, like I like to say, in a conference room in New Jersey, quote unquote, really developed somewhat in a bubble, insulated from external stakeholders providing input. We push those studies out to clinical sites. The clinical sites look at these studies and say, okay, I, I guess we can enroll the study, but boy, it would have been nice if we, you shared uh, our feedback first. And then the sites then move out to patients. So you have this kind of stepwise approach where a study is developed and designed in a, in a manner that is very disconnected from the end user, the patient who will actually enroll in it. And so we push these studies out and then we realize, oh, there's all kinds of barriers and challenges. And then we have to just work to overcome them. So um, part of it's the the, the, uh, the structure of the paradigm of 
go to clinical sites, clinical sites find patients, patients you have to drop everything and travel to and from sites. So um, those are really kind of the, the paradigms, the challenge. When you talk to patients, um, patients say that they're the biggest burden for them, the biggest challenge to participating is travel. Travel to and from a clinical site is the most significant burden for rare disease patients. And that's uh, really at the core of what we need to kind of work on. PRA Health Sciences is a contract research organization. It also runs the PRA Center for Rare Diseases, which is done in collaboration with rare disease patients. The center recently released a free toolkit to identify and mitigate risk to rare disease clinical programs. Why did you decide to do this? What problem were you trying to address? Yeah, the the problem we were trying to address is instead of um, trying to figure out ways to overcome these hurdles we're talking about for, for clinical studies, to go further upstream and to provide tools to sponsors and patients alike upfront prior to studies being developed and finalized and and locked down and pushed out to clinical sites to be able to educate and inform and call out those risks, call out those hurdles in a study before we move further downstream to where we're we're wondering why people aren't enrolling. So the tool was enabled and, and built really guided by patients to help both patients, but also help our biotech and pharma trial sponsors look at their studies from the uh, from the view of a patient perspective and to actually say, well, hold on, before we actually, you know, finalize this and move this out to clinical sites, we're hearing that X, Y, and Z might be a big barrier. Let's see if we can make some changes and adjust this a little bit to make it a little bit more patient-friendly. There are four components to the toolkits. Let's run through each of those and tell me how they work and, and what do they do. The first is a patient-centric protocol risk assessment tool. What is it and how how should it be used? Sure. So the first part is to actually um, take a look at a clinical study. And if you work in clinical trials and, and, and clinical protocols are part of your day-to-day vocabulary, the core, the, the essence of that pr- clinical protocol is what we call a schedule of assessments or a schedule of evaluations. And that schedule of assessments really is a grid that outlines what and when is going to happen. And so you'll often see these by, you know, week one, two, three, all the way out uh, to week 52. And then you'll see a long list of things like a physical exam or an invasive procedure or a scan or an assessment. Um, In a conference room in New Jersey, quote unquote, um, we, we sort of map out every data point that we want. And we bring together our chemists and our translational scientists and our physicians. And we all come together and say, these are all the data points and measures that we want. And oh, by the way, if we could get these all of these different time points, that'd be even a better, more robust data set. Um, of course, when you do that and you're looking to build this uh, massive monolith of data, um, we're not necessarily thinking again about is that realistic for patients to to um, to participate in all of that and help provide all of those data points. So the, the, the patient-centered protocol development tool up front is to be able to pressure test a couple of these things up front to assess the level of burden or inconvenience or, you know, how much of a hurdle is one of these assessments we're looking at before we finalize it. So there's a way to play with some of the levers up and down in a protocol 
to see how impactful they might be on a real person or a patient. And so this tool is a, is a tool for sponsors to, um, you know, before you get too far, please take a look at this, try to assess, look in the mirror at what you're trying to do and, and hopefully um, be able to make some adjustments before it's too late. The second is a, a rapid participation burden survey tool. What is that and how is it used? Yeah, this is a tool that's, again, trying to, for those sponsors we alluded to earlier that, that talk about being patient-centric or talk about being patient-focused, a lot of, a lot of our, our, our colleagues and clients don't know how to reach out to patients or how to speak to patients or what's appropriate. So we've developed a way to, um, for them to very quickly um, be able to reach out to patients um, via a survey tool to, to ask what's maybe most important to a patient or what would be an endpoint that would be relevant to their disease and their experience or um, what are their, what kind of physical limitations do they have? Um, what are some things they might be comfortable doing or what might be too much to ask of them? So it's a way to create a little bit of a dialogue between a sponsor and a patient in a safe, controlled, somewhat confidential manner to really get that patient feedback and input up front um, and to really help these patients, or I'm sorry, help the, help these sponsors be a little more patient focused. The third component of the toolkit is a patient involvement value dossier. What is this and what's its purpose? Well, the purpose of this is for those, for those colleagues of ours out there who think being patient centric or patient focused is a good thing. Maybe it um, strikes some sense of altruism in you. Maybe it sounds warm and fuzzy and you like the idea of it. Um, at the same time, you know, we all work for organizations that may have um, top and bottom lines they're focused on. This, this dossier around value shows that not only is, is involving patients the right thing to do, it actually um, has a return on investment and makes financial sense to include patients in the process and to incorporate their input. This obviously impacts some of the challenges we talked about earlier enrollment and retention. It allows clinical trials to be more realistic for people to participate in. So if you're having a hard time internally um, gaining support and consensus around why we should move to a more patient-focused approach, um, this dossier outlines some evidence around, you know, why it's even financially impactful and that, you know, hopefully it can speak to anybody, whatever their motivations might be. And the final part, I think, would be of particular interest to any patient who's considering participating in a clinical trial. This is a guide for patients and caregivers, and it provides a rather full set of questions they should ask before participating in the study. Are there things patients in general don't understand about clinical trials that they need to? Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. I think that we're trying to encourage a little more dialogue, right? So we're we're encouraging sponsors via some tools to be able to reach out and solicit patient input and patient feedback on a study. At the same time, this participant guide really informs patients, and, and perhaps it's even better for patients who may not know a lot about clinical studies, may not know a lot about the drug development industry, it allows them to, um, it informs and provides a guide for maybe questions they could ask, or um, if they're thinking about participating in a clinical study, it, it allows them to have a sense of what's realistic. Like as a patient, what can I ask for from a, from a sponsor? Is it okay to ask for travel reimbursement? Is it 
okay to ask for some type of um, um, support or someone to arrange um, parking for me? Or what are really the options even available to me as a patient? Could I have a nurse come to my home to support a blood draw as opposed to going into a clinic? Some patients might not even know that's an option, but but putting that um, opportunity in front of them might make the difference um, between them participating or not. So it's 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 the it's sort of the back end of trying to support the dialogue between industry and patients. I suspect there are patients and caregivers who are very anxious to participate in a clinical study, particularly when they have a condition where there are no treatments available. What types of questions should patients think about before consenting to participate in the study? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And you, I think you have some good perspective on this yourself. Um, there's, a, of course, a big range of, of patients, as there are a range of just people in general. And so um, the level of education or exposure people have had to, to industry and clinical research um, varies, varies quite a bit. I think um, in this new kind of world we're entering, you know, COVID has served as such an incredible accelerant for us um, making a change to this somewhat archaic paradigm that I've alluded to. Um, It's forced us to to leverage technology and new tools to keep things going. And with that, this paradigm now is really shifting a bit. And to the benefit of patients, it will provide more opportunities. At the same time, with the change occurring pretty rapidly, actually, right in front of us, um, there are things available to patients that maybe weren't available 12 or 24 months ago. Um, So, for example, a lot of the clinical studies that we're involved with in the rare disease space, most of them include um, some type of telehealth component, um, the ability to interact with your physician remotely from the comfort of your own home on a smartphone, as opposed to flying or driving to a clinic and parking and all of the sort of time and hassles associated with that. Again, those are hassles and inconveniences, but when you overlay that on top of a rare disease patient who's already struggling with a, you know, potentially, you know, chronic life-threatening illness, or perhaps there's a child that's being taken care of with such an illness, um, the barriers all become exponential that way. So, um, some of the some of the opportunities available to patients these days are things like telehealth. I alluded to home health care nursing earlier, which essentially moves some aspects of a clinical site to a patient's physical home. If a patient's comfortable with that or would prefer that, you know that can remove a lot of stress, a lot of time, a lot of challenges from that patient's plate, um, and be able to um, to kind of minimize the burden so that they can participate and they can stay on study. So. We're trying to arm patients with um, the possibilities that now exist and let them know that there are some options for them um, that might not have been you know, available to them in a traditional old school paradigm. One of the longstanding complaints you hear from patient advocates with regards to clinical trials is that they're consulted too late in the process after the trial design has been completed. They may be frustrated that Studies don't consider endpoints they believe to be meaningful or that trials are too onerous in their design for patients to participate, whether it's due to travel or other demands. How do you see the industry changing? Has it become more enlightened about the value in working with patients early in the process? 
Well, there's there's good trends this way. Uh, I think we're we're moving really in the right direction. And again, COVID has been helpful in this regard, right? So some of us have been evangelizing the need to include patient inputs. Think about the studies you're asking people to to participate in. This this old mantra of you know if you build it, they will come isn't really true anymore. I mean, patients are more educated. They they have choices. Um, there's competition out there. Certainly patients are altruistic and they're looking for a new a treatment that will, you know, um, help them with their disease. Um, but they also, they also do have choices and they do have preferences and they do understand now more and more that there are options available to them and that we can be thinking smarter and that um, this age old paradigm can be shifted a bit to be able to be more patient friendly. Um, I think sponsors are now, seeing this more. I think sponsors have seen that COVID has required us to operate a little differently just to sort of get things done during the pandemic. But as we come out of this, hopefully soon, um, you know, you, you see the, you see the movements out there, the hashtag, you know, never go back um, to old, old paradigms. I think, I think people are seeing the light and I think it will be really challenging to revert back to um, older models when we've seen that we can operate more, you know, in a, in a smarter, more patient-friendly way. So I'm really, really optimistic. And we're also supported by agencies like the FDA that really are encouraging a, a more patient-focused drug development mindset and approach. Um, so uh, it's long overdue. And uh, I would never have bet that a pandemic would help us with this effort. But, um, you know, we've seen some good progress as a result. Scott Schliebner, Senior Vice President and Head of the Center for Rare Diseases at PRA Health Sciences. Scott, thanks so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.